In 2007, England played Croatia and failed to qualify for Euro 2008. In this book, Art Pompey, uh, you quote the Sun's headline, England are the joke of European football. And on that day, your life changed, right, Paul Watson? Yes, in a way, it, it was that day that we had the pub conversation of, you know, could, could we play for Andorra initially, I think, because England needed Andorra to beat Russia. <laughs> that was a desperate state we, situation we were in. You know, it was sort of a throwaway comment of, you know, well, of course, if Andorra beat Russia, England are in, or, you know, it's this kind of conversation. And, and it starts that route, I think, I think it's the conversation most fans have had during an England game is, you know, can't play for England, but, you know, when we're beating one of these minnows, well, surely you could play for San Marino. And actually, when you start to really think about it, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> I've had people very, very forcefully tell me they can. They really can't. You can, <laughs> San Marino, you know, by the standards of a park footballer, are better than you'll ever be. <laughs> and um, So it was taking that to its extremes and saying, OK, well, if not San Marino, where? And, you know, when you actually start to look at the world... There are an awful lot of football teams, but they are all better than you. <laughs> and that was the realisation we came to until we found non-FIFA football, which opened a kind of new world up to us. And so uh, you headed to Micronesia with a dream. And it's it's very similar to what my dad's old partner was doing, which was teaching, or that this is what you've done later, but teaching people in sub-Saharan Africa how to be doctors so I guess what you wanted to do was teach people in Micronesia how to coach football whilst also being a coach yourself, because it's, you're, you're not just going in as a kind of missionary. Yeah, it's a very flattering comparison. <laughs> <laughs> Saving people's lives. Um, yeah, it, it's funny because the, the concept of the book and the, uh, again, with no disrespect meant to him, but, you know, you get Tony, Tony Hawks and Tony Hawks, yeah. you know, ran, playing World Opens at tennis. And it's a comedy concept and he's a comedian. And it's, it's great. It's really funny. Um, this this wasn't that in that the idea wasn't comic. Um, whether that makes it more tragic, I don't know. But it also, we weren't actually going to go over there and play. That by the time uh, we went over there, we'd met someone who used to be in charge of their FA, and he had said, you know, you really can't play for this country. That would be ridiculous. But we'd love someone to come over and help restart football because it, it's kind of fallen by the wayside. And and I think it's without those things, it would have felt, looking back, it would have felt quite exploitative, a little bit colonial, but also it just would have felt like a really silly mission. And that wasn't the intent. And it's fine if it is, but that wasn't the intent, if you know what I mean. It wasn't a comic project. It wasn't, uh, I didn't even know I'd write a book about it. So, yeah, we were very serious about it, but possibly delusional. But but, but our mission was, you know, could we could we get there, get over there and set up a football structure again? But it, but it's quite crucial that there's an again. It wasn't a missionary thing. It wasn't wasn't going over to a group of people and saying you should like football. We will make you play football. It was very much like you know there had been football program programs before. They just lacked someone to really drive it forward and help people develop that. And it, it made the super sore away sun. Paul Watson has taken charge of the world's worst football team on a remote island in the Pacific Ocean. The island has only 34,000 inhabitants and the third wettest climate in the world. Players often turn up late for training. The first line of the book is, you remember... <laughs> we have a problem with toads. We have a problem yeah. with toads. You were 25 and Matthew was 25, which sounds astonishingly young. This was 2009. Mm. Um, I look back to when I was 25 and I couldn't run a team of men. Um, 
you did uh, appear on a, a show to plug the book at the time, and you said you'd come back and you'd you were aware that you'd not made fun, but you'd made light of what Pompeians were doing. I think the book is a reverse of that. I think it's really loving and really solid, and it is. It's one of the great plots that I think Tolstoy says. There's two kinds of plot. Guy goes on a quest and a stranger comes to town. So it's actually both of them. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think what I meant was um, the, the biggest mistake I made in, in the whole process, uh, probably, I mean, I made lots, but I was very naive to a lot of things. And when we started out, we realised we needed to find a way to fund it, especially just to fund the kit. We didn't have any visions of earning a salary. We kind of knew what we were in for. Uh, I was also very naive about what going into debt would mean and just very blasé and didn't realise quite what it meant, I think, being very young and brash. Um, but what we realised was we, we would need kit and we would need money to buy kit, you know, the, just the practical stuff. And we had this vision that if we wanted sponsorship, we had to get media. Um, now, obviously, it came also with a sense of it is flattering when you're 25. I mean, whoever you are, really, it's flattering to be on the BBC or on, you know, all this stuff. There is an ego stroke there, and I don't deny that. But I think what we really wanted was someone would come out of the woodwork and fund all our kits or, you know, something like that. And we would be able to go over there and say, you know, here's all the all the stuff that the players would tell us they don't have. Here are boots, here are balls, you know, who are the useful things. And actually, the idiocy of it was we thought we could go to the media and get people to respond to it in a kind of loving and compassionate way. But what we didn't realise is you, you're just putting you're putting world's worst team on a plate for them. And we never actually said that. It just got obviously very easily picked up and, and they got exactly the treatment in the press you'd expect. But at the time at 25, we just didn't realise that. You know, I was a journalist even, but I was fresh-faced and naive. And I think I think just didn't have any idea quite what would happen. We didn't expect it to go as big as it did. So yeah, that was a mistake. And we didn't even get sponsorship. We didn't get anything useful, which again, I could tell you now, 10 years later, I could tell you we wouldn't. But at the time... That felt like <laughs> get some media, get some sponsors, but no. I mean, now I know full well that wasn't how you do things. Which, but, of course, yeah. was was very useful when you were doing the similar job as tournament director for the Kanifa World Football Cup. If you just called it the World Cup, you'd be fined for a ban or a legal suit would be removed on you. Yep, because FIFA, as we know, needs the money. Uh, it is by the by the time this show goes out in the middle of April, we will know whom England are playing in Qatar and we we've known that this World Cup was going to be in Qatar from the time before you were writing the manuscript for Up Pay. it's now upon us will you be watching it at all um it's a very good question it's a very good question I've toyed with boycotting it and I it's, I find the boycotting talk really interesting because in a way oh there's so many facets to it in a yeah. way it doesn't make any difference if people boycott it it really doesn't unless they you know if I don't watch the World Cup what's going to happen but in another way if you think that way you don't really ever make any change in the world at all you just you know it's a very good excuse not to do something that's uncomfortable for you and I also see journalists quite rightly saying you know we have to report on it just because you don't necessarily like the ethics of something doesn't mean you can't report on it and, and I don't know I don't know what the answer is personally I don't watch much football these days so it won't make much difference <laughs> that's the truth of the matter Paw Patrol on the other hand exactly yeah. um, I think at the last you know at the Euros I only watched maybe a game and a half for that whole thing. So, yeah, I'm, it won't massively impact on me in that sense. I, I do think the moral outrage is useful. It's useful for people to engage with it. 
far too late and the people that should have made the decisions didn't make them at the right times and now the people that are being asked to make them are not the right people it's not for gareth southgate to make this decision it's not for the average person for whom football is an escape from their daily life who enjoys the sport who, who just gets joy out of it. it shouldn't be for them to to boycott it this should have been cut out years ago by the people whose jobs are to safeguard the integrity of the sport and the tournaments that's that's my personal view so as to whether i boycott it yeah, it won't make a huge matter. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, and uh, you are a guy who um, did, and this is pertinent because in Brazil there was a lot of protest about, we, we, yeah, we can hold a jamboree, but what about our schools and hospitals? Uh, you provided an alternative preview to the 2014 World Cup as part of the back of the net uh, pieces for 442, which are all still online. Uh, there are some very satirical and fun pieces. Uh, which reminded me of what the Telegraph were trying to do with Project Bab. And now Johnny Lou, who spearheaded that project is at the guardian it's a small oh, world i didn't know that he um spearheaded. I, I just did a podcast with johnny he's brilliant a brilliant writer i didn't realize he spearheaded that so, yeah he's he was at the telegraph at the time with jim and i think jason and there must have been one maybe sam wallace but there are so many great writers and they are going to produce some of their best work barney rone and um johnny northcroft both wrote diaries of the 2018 world cup where they said well, Russia, boo Russia, but the people are friendly, and yes, we know why. Um, and England did magnificently well, but we're not equipped for Qatar. It'll be Brazil or Argentina, probably Argentina, uh, but it could equally be Brazil. But I don't care so much about that. I came, care more about two tournaments, the Kanifa Women's World Cup in India in July, and before that, the Kanifa European Football Cup in June. I chose not to go to the final of the Kanifa World Football Cup, but I watched it online. My God, it was wet. It was dreadful. <laughs> it was the worst game of the competition. Yeah. It was all day. It was funny because it had been such a great but weird tournament. Some of the games, some of the atmosphere was amazing and the weather was generally brilliant. And it just it so happened that the final was a bad game, terrible weather. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it, it didn't really... I think at that point, I felt like the job had been done, to be totally honest. Some of the the semi-final days were amazing. Um, the crowds were huge. Yeah, I felt like, to be honest, by the final, we had done well enough. It was a bit of a damp squib, but uh, I actually got to the final pretty late anyway because I was trying to sort out the sixth and seventh place, I think it was, um, game or fifth and sixth place game where um, one of the teams had forgotten their kit, so I had to start late. Jesus. <laughs> True Connie for experience there. And can I thank you, Paul Watson, because it got me a job. I covered the Kanifa World Football Cup. I went to a couple of the games at Harringay and I, actually, I saw the comedian Mark Watson with your uh, nephew there in support because I realised that you were using your Pompeii experience as tournament director. I think I still have the Matabele Land billion dollar note that the teams were handing out as souvenirs. I remember standing next to Bruce Grobbler thinking, oh yeah, that's Bruce Grobbler. Uh, and Justin has told that story quite brilliantly about the meeting on the the motorway. Um, but I was I was enraptured by it because it just for, first of all I'm in Watford and Edgware were where the teams were a lot of the teams were based. So I went to the opening uh, of the tournament and I saw Chris Dealey who has written a great book about it. Uh, see, although he said the book nearly made him ill. Um, so God knows how you must have felt organising this tournament. But ultimately. Um, it was a huge success. And what I liked is that you used non-league grounds. So you found a level 
you got the crowd. Paddy Power were involved. I think Mr. Paddy Power was some of well, it's like a summariser for some of the games, and it seemed to work. So I, I guess you have fond memories of, of the tournament. Yeah, I mean, I I do actually, and I'm very proud of it. Still, um, it was a very weird situation uh, in a lot of ways. It, it's again really interesting window into I think into football and and the way the world works and football world works that. I came to Kanifa, I approached them and said, look, I, you know, having had this experience in Pompeii, when I was in Pompeii, there was a non-FIFA organisation and it was kind of nonsense. And I'd seen Kanifa come up and rise and obviously seemed serious. I liked the people involved. Uh, and I said to them, if I were to come and help you, what do you need? And they basically just said, money. We need a sponsor. We have nowhere to hold our next World Cup. We have no sponsors. Nobody wants to touch us because of the political connotations with it. And... I just happened to know people at Paddy Power through something Mark had done, actually. I, I'd been introducing people at Paddy Power. I thought, you know, if there's, if there's ever a sponsor that wouldn't be worried about offending people, it would be Paddy Power. And so when I broached this with one of them, and he just loved it, and, you know, sure enough, it was it was the actually sponsorship deal that people pretend sponsorship deals are. We went to the pub, we had a few drinks, he loved the idea, and six months later we had a sponsorship deal. But it was a very funny paradox that in order to have this tournament that's supposed to be a sort of moral version of a world cup it's what it an ethical world cup yeah. the only company that would go anywhere near it were paddy power uh a gambling we found later on we, we were trying to attach secondary sponsors nobody would would, would touch it because of tibet yes. almost always because of tibet and they just always had a chinese interest we even have one company who are quite a well-known company i can't name them who were going to give us all our accommodation for free which would have been transformative uh but they demanded that we take Tibet out of the competition and we didn't and so that fell through and it cost us about £120,000 mm. worth of, <laughs> of, of potential accommodation but it was for me it was a really fascinating paradox that the only people who really got behind this were a gambling company and it obviously that did cause us concerns but it was that or nothing you know we could the tournament depended on I, I, you know I look back very fondly of it but it was incredibly stressful we never had the money we needed everything was was against us the stipulations were impossible. The visas were impossible to get. The, you name it, it was problem after problem after problem. And so, actually, it was incredibly stressful to be involved in. But I, the pride that you feel, I think the, the biggest moment for me was hearing the Tibetan anthem play at Enfield Town and just thinking, this is something quite special. Like, it really set goosebumps on the back of your neck, just seeing these, these fans, loads of Tibetan fans and the players, and seeing what it meant to them to hear their anthem. Um it really meant a lot, you know, and it, you thought, well, we've actually done something worth doing here. And especially because it was so sunny. And I also like the contrast of Harringy Borough's football uh, ground. It's on White Hart Lane. There are two football clubs on White Hart Lane. There's the non-league one and the one where Antonio Conte seems to be on a mission to say the unsayable, but still get paid for doing so. This is an, an amazing project going on at Tottenham at the moment. Not as good as Bristol City whom yeah. we talked about in the first half. But this is a long way. Here's a segue. I'm really good at these segues now. Kante is Italian, and you studied Italian at Leeds University. I know plenty of people who are at Leeds. The great Owen Bradley, who is involved at Derby County, uh, was, I think, just as you were leaving, he had joined. My friend Elliot Kaur was involved in LSR Sport, so I used to sit in the library, listen to him, 
Did you get involved with LSR or the sports journalism bit at Leeds, or were you too busy on the Football Italia website? Yeah, no, I didn't do any student journalism. I think I started Football Italia in my final year, and I was basically working on that uh, on that website. I think as a student, and then just sort of when I left, I just just sort of became a, a full time writer for that. It wasn't what people think it would be. It was. I think I was on 16,000 a year and it was 10 hour shifts in front of a computer working from home. <laughs> so it was not the glamour. Hey, you're lucky. 15 years ago, journalism actually paid, doesn't now? It's crazy, isn't it? Isn't it absolutely crazy? I mean, yeah, I mean, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm still very grateful for the job in many ways. Like it was, it was a great foundation to journalism and it was um i loved italian football still do loved having a connection to the country um and worked with some amazing people as well some of my some of the favorite people i've ever worked with was football italia um there were some lovely lovely people there especially susie actually was the editor as um who is the editor now i think still was was amazing but it was not necessarily what i thought it'd be <laughs> to uh-huh. be honest I have visions of going to Italy, and that was never on the table. <laughs> Do you know where I've, I've never been to Cambridge or Bristol, the two cities most associated with the Watson family? Um, so I must put that right. You are, of course, Mark Watson's younger brother. We won't go on about it. Uh, but Mark Watson has been called many things, but not the Mongolian Simon Cowell. And it was lovely to see in 442, uh, just last month, it's gone off sale now, but it was last month, the April issue, where in an issue where the EF, EPL's best 100 players were, I had no interest in that. I don't need to know that. I just need to know about what your life has been like uh, since Pompeii. And it turns out, um, aside from becoming a dad twice, uh, you spent three years in Mongolia, essentially tackling football corruption and developing talent. Uh, was it a step too far, however? Um, yeah, I mean, it's funny, like, uh, the project in a way, again, is it, it was baffling, it was long, it was financially disastrous, it was difficult, but it's actually probably the most fundamental part of my football development was what happened in Mongolia, rather than Pompeii in a way, because I think what Mongolia, so Pompeii was the development effectively from starting that experience, I was a player, or wanted to be a player and became a coach and then from Mongolia I started as a coach and ended up being a club owner <laughs> and so it was like a it was sort of movement uh, gradually sort of zooming out and out and out it's like you, you've got a lens on you and you're zooming out and that's what that experience did to me in Mongolia was suddenly it was a crash course in running a club and all that comes with that and, and you know a lot of that was learned through how not to do it I learned how not to do it but it still was an amazing experience to have that you know I went from coaching a team to to owning a team and in three years and uh, it ultimately didn't end successfully but I think I learned so much that you couldn't have you know you would have paid a lot for a course like that <laughs> yes well, well indeed you're offering a talk uh, it's being rescheduled have you got a rescheduled date yet oh uh, no I haven't actually I, I did one yeah and, uh, no I haven't set the other dates but I just caught actually the um uh, the wife um, I'm the wife, <laughs> the children, not the wife, <laughs> the children and my wife. I've got to work out how to to make it work with bedtimes and stuff like that. So I need to really like run it by her. And actually, it's uh, it's getting harder if anything because the little one doesn't sleep. <laughs> so what you're saying, what you're saying is having two children is harder than being director of Bayangol. Actually, I don't know the pronunciation of this. Bayangol, 
Bayern yeah, FC, which is the team. And I, I will sign up to whenever you talk about it. Is this going to be a book or a film or is it just going to be a lecture? You no, I, think, I don't think it can be either. So for a while, uh, people asked why I didn't write a book. And there are two reasons, basically. The, the advance I got for Pompeii was, was too high. Um, that wasn't something I complained about at the time. But actually, you know, it's still not huge, but relative to books, it was, it was pretty big. And so the book never earned that back. So I'm, I'd find it very hard to get a book deal um, for another book. But beyond that, also, the other problem is that the Mongolia story was very bitty. And there are some areas that are legally very dubious to talk about. It paints some people in a very bad light. Who I just I don't really want to put that out there. And actually, this was interesting because at Pompeii, I tried very hard to paint everyone in a nice light there were there were elements that didn't go in there there were stories that didn't go in there because i felt they could hurt people that i cared about and that's the problem with writing non-fiction um but even in art pompeii there were a couple of people who didn't like how they were portrayed they actually weren't pompeians um but that i found really upsetting uh, they're actually very bit part characters but yeah i didn't like that uh, and it made me aware even more when writing when thinking about writing about mongolia that it would it would inevitably paint some people in quite a bad light and they're not people I'm necessarily still in touch with or friends with, but I don't really want to release that into the world and, and put that in print. And, and so, yeah, I, I think that was the major reason why I didn't do it was that responsibility, you know, especially when they're people who are not in the public, you know, they're not widely written about people, they're normal people who would then see this in print and maybe their friends and family could eventually see it. I don't know, but, you know, you've just got to be so careful with that, I think. Mm-hmm. And there, it would feel special to do that. There is a way to overcome... Um slander or libel or just being just that problem and that's to follow your brother the successful author who has moved into fiction i think this would make a great work of fiction if you disguise the characters because how many books are set in mongolia yeah i suppose i think the thing is everyone would be very easily recognizable um because you know it depends on it it's actually interesting we we sold fictional rights to Pompeii and it's been messed around with for several or eight years. It's gone for various places mm-hmm. where people have had their, their say. And there's there's two ends of the scale. There's the one end where if you do something fictional that is based on a true story, if it's too close to the truth, people can identify themselves, but they can also feel it's like a documentary that's misrepresenting them because mm-hmm. it's it's kind of very similar to the story. So they it feels more dishonest. Or you can really mess around with it uh, and, and take license but then it almost just doesn't become the story that you're trying to tell because so much of the devil is in the detail if you see what i mean so with pompeii they were talking you know well do we because it's quite similar to next goal wins which is going to become a feature on this year do we take it away from the micronesian region because the palette of that is very similar to american samoa and it's a very similar look and feel to the place and it's it's true you can the story can replicate itself so many of the cultural elements of the story that make it what it is are because it's Pompeii specifically. Well, that, that difficulty comes in. I've, I've got two examples for you. A Bug's Life and Ants and <laughs> A Shark's Tale and Finding Nemo, which were essentially the same film. It was Disney uh, and or DreamWorks and Pixar or Disney and DreamWorks. It was the same film, the exact same concept. And they existed quite happily in the universe. So I think Next Goal Wins and um, Up Pompeii would be perfect to complement one another. But Yeah, uh, I, I don't think it's necessarily prohibitive. That's how I was used to see it. I used to think um, 
I used to be really worried. Oh, if next goal winds comes out, then it blows us out of the water. Actually, weirdly, it almost benefits a potential up on play movie if next goal winds does well. What what actually does makes it very bad for a Pompeii movie would be a next goal wins movie comes out and fails at box mm, office yeah. because then it's it's seen as saying well there's no appetite for this type of story there's actually more chance I think a Pompeii would move into TV series now partly because that differentiates between that and next goal wins it gives a different scope but also because TV is generally taking over where where people's money is at the moment you know, it's, it's where the, the money's driving things so it, it is interesting that whole world of like telling a truth through a fiction. Um, but it's a very dangerous ground. And especially when you are talking about people who might recognize themselves, I totally understand. We even have that with, with me and, and Lizzie, who is the girlfriend in the book who becomes the wife in real life. Um, you know, in a fictional version, our, our relationship would almost certainly be told differently. It would almost certainly be used for dramatic of events. Of course, but... as it always is, yes. Uh, and, and that's difficult because then when people go out and see that film, if it's fictional, you don't expect every single person who goes out to watch a, a movie to then question which parts are real and which parts aren't. So those people will read that into our real relationship. So it, it's it's very difficult. That. And I think as much as I, I'm disappointed there's not been a film of Up Pompeii, I'm probably more relieved, to be totally honest yes. with you. It allows me to still function in the region as well. If I want to, if I want to do things to help football in the region i'm still able to do that whereas if a film comes out and it's seen as as denigrating or you know making making fun of the region which it could be yeah because it's out of my control that would absolutely write off my ability yeah. to it'd be a done. diplomatic incident i think uh which means that um as well as being a father of two and not being able to sleep uh recently and happy easter have as happy an easter as you can and we're talking just before Bristol City go to Bournemouth uh, in uh, what should be a defining championship fixture for the rest of time. Because neither of those two teams are worse than 24th in the championship or better than 20th in the Premier League. So that could be the new kind of Ipswich against Stoke fixture, Bristol City, Bournemouth. I'll wrap up this chat in the Football Library by bringing loads of threads together. You're currently a consultant for, I'm going to go Timpu rather than Thimpu, City FC, in Bhutan. There was a These Football Times piece in 2017 where there was a line that leapt out uh, when you said Pompey was funded by £30 here and there. Shirts were provided by Yeovil Town and Norwich City to Pompey, so you could play and train in them. And you also became a big issue championed humanitarian for Kitmus. So you can go wherever you want there. Those are four various strands. Pick one and run with it. <laughs> well, I think, again, the humanitarian's a bit strong. But yeah, Kitmus was a nice idea. Kitmus, Kitmus is one of those times that a project just pops into place. So, I, yeah, I, I tend to send kit around the world to various places where it's needed to good projects that need football kit. They're always, they're always around. Um, and just so happened that in uh, 2020 coming towards Christmas I had some kits that had no home specified for them uh, and thought we this country is probably where there's the greatest need for these so yeah that that then started this idea of well I wonder if we could collect shirts to give out to community groups working with families who may not have presents to give to children at Christmas and it it really caught something I think unlike a lot of my work which is quite difficult to explain and requires like an hour to explain the concept this idea of just giving football shirts to 
families who could then give them to their children for Christmas just seemed very simple and people really got behind it. And yeah, it continued that weird relationship with football shirts that began way back with selling Pompeii shirts to fund the team uh, back then. Yeah, it, it's been a big part of my life. <laughs> I, I apologise for some reason, I'm even though my dad and my uncle took over the clothing business, I have no passion for clothes whatsoever. Um, but or, or football strips. There's actually going to be an exhibition opening next week in association with the National Football Museum at the London Design Museum, all about football, the beautiful game. So I expect there'll be a lot of dads taking their kids or and mums to the um, and girls to the uh, to the Design Museum. Um, I would posit, Paul Watson, that you are guarding the soul of football with something like Kitmus. Um, well, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do my best. I think I think my motto through the career it's just it try and do small things that make a difference to someone you know and I, I think that's the thing with football when you break it down into if you try and make look at the, the broader scale there are problems everywhere the whole thing is 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 rotten to the core there are you know you're not going to fix football certainly not if you're me <laughs> but I, I think no one's going to fix football so I think whenever there's a small way that you can make a difference for the positive it's really nice to be able to take it and I think that's, mm. that's sort of what I've looked to do through my career it's never it's never sort of going to change the world but but if you do just a small bit of good somewhere through it then yeah that's something right I am trying to I think I'm going to talk to the people at Watford Council because I'm fed up of looking over my shoulder just in case someone on a scooter or a bike roars past on this path. And I've taken to yelling at them, but then I'm the villain. So so it's the micro, it's the small P politics. Up Pompeii, a quest to reclaim the soul of football by leading the world's ultimate underdogs to glory celebrates 10 years since being stuck in development hell and also being published i mean you've got your hands full with uh timpu city at the moment as a consultant and also the two children uh but what is going to be the next little thing you're going to do to keep the soul of football glowing um this is a good question one well, I'm, I'm actually really i'm taking a bit of taking stock a little bit actually about what to do next um i'm, I'm always doing about 15 different projects at once but actually i'm just Take a little bit of time, work out the next move. And yeah, I, I'm hoping. I mean, obviously, this work with Tim Pruce has been a lot of fun. It's kept that kind of kept that element in my life, and also just it's a real privilege to learn about a culture and learn about a place you, you you didn't know before. And yeah, I'm just really enjoying this kind of lifestyle. I think where I'm I'm at home and I'm with the kids. And I'm still getting to imagine I'm travelling. <laughs> Indeed, and I will give you your football library card with Greg Goodridge on it, the famous Bristol oh, City I, cult hero. <laughs> and I will point you in the direction of the Andy Holt Lounge where you can uh, take your place as the Bristol champion. Bring your medal and your trophy. Do you have the trophy still from the uh, Sensible Soccer I, Tournament? I think we had to give it back the next year. I don't think... I have to ask my parents if there's one knocking around the, in the attic. I'm also dreading that it will come out. I didn't actually win it. It's weird with childhood memories. I'm pretty sure I did. Mark definitely did. I, I, I would have been there or thereabouts. Mark always remembers these things. He's really got a brilliant memory and mine's useless, but Mark will tell you. I, I'm pretty sure I won it. And uh, can I commend Mark Watson, who, along with Tim Key and Alex Horn, are some of the finest comic minds in Britain. So I presume you know all of them. So your dinner parties must be thrilling. Alex Horn has about five kids. So I don't know what you've got to complain about with the two. I didn't know that. No, I didn't know that. They all have five kids. I think no. it's five. Miles Jupp certainly has five. I think Alex has a few. Oh, 
How does he get? How does he manage that? <laughs> well, that's why that's why he sits in his shed and comes up with ideas for Taskmaster all day. Right. <laughs> I, I did know he worked in the shed because it was on it was on some TV program that we learned that, wasn't it? But um, yeah, that's amazing. Just like the library. Just like the library. Just like the library. Just like the library. Shh.